I was sick. I'd been living in the woods for over a week, and the rain didn't stop. The group I was staying with let me sleep in the center of the tarp, the driest spot, but my sore throat turned into a sinus infection and then a cough. Colds always run in that order for me. During the day, I sometimes helped in the makeshift kitchen under a teepee made of tarp. I would peel potatoes or stir pots, things that a person can do with very little cooking experience. At night, I was torn. Smoke from the bonfire exacerbated my cough, tearing up my sinuses and sending me into coughing fits. But away from the fire, everything was cold, my sleeping bag was wet, and I was lonely. Just lay down, said the cook, as I paced around the kitchen. I can't, I said. My stomach is killing me. Sleep will fix you, said the cook. I can't stop shitting, I said. The bathroom was a hole in the ground, about 30 yards from camp. At night, around the bonfire, they gave lessons. People taught you how to build zip lines to safely traverse the treetops. There were sessions on medical plants, community building, and natural birth controls. But in the end, the discussion always turned to human destruction. These people had gathered in the woods to stop loggers from cutting down old-growth forest in Fall Creek, Oregon, by any means necessary. I don't want to say that I'd made a mistake, but through a couple of uninformed decisions, I found myself living with them. I was sick and guilty and scared and amazed, and I needed to get out. I woke at five in the morning on my eighth day in the forest. My body was warm in a way that concerned me. Snot flowed from everywhere. I tried to fall back asleep, but a persistent cough kept me up. I listened to music on my Walkman while telling myself positive things about my future, things I didn't really believe. Around 7 a.m., a truck navigated by two beautiful women pulled up to our campsite. They were bringing food and additional tarps to help with the rain. They asked if anyone needed a ride back to town. I'll come along, said a boy I hardly knew. Please, I said, staring at this boy. Let me go back. I'm so sick. He nodded. So you know, said one of the women, we're going to stop by some hot springs on the way. I think I could use that very much right now, I said. A week before I took residence at this camp, I was traveling down the West Coast with some squatters I met in Portland. They were drunks and beggars, highly political, although their actions often contradicted their convictions. Still, they had shown me where to sleep when I was spending my nights on the street, and without them, I was afraid I'd be homeless again. Fletcher, said a boy named Marty, when we get to Eugene, we're going up to the tree sits. I nodded, although I didn't know what this meant. Marty was the one I trusted. He was only 20, a year older than me, but he'd been traveling for years. He wore a heavy beard covering his young face, with nappy hair running down the back of his Carhartt overalls. He hardly drank, laughed at everything, and always made sure that I was invited along. You're gonna love it, Marty went on. It's beautiful in Fall Creek. 
In exchange for made-up names and fake social security numbers, we were given free bags of food from the Eugene Food Bank. Soon, Marty and I were laying in the bed of a truck piloted by a woman I had just met named Georgia. We wound our way deeper and deeper into the old-growth forest. Oh man, the Smiths, hollered Marty, looking through the cassette tapes in my backpack. I've been listening to this in years. Marty and I weren't alone. A boy named Sprout had been traveling with us since Portland. Every invitation Marty extended to me had been accompanied by Sprout's distrust. Marty presented the Smiths tape to Sprout, and Sprout shook his head disapprovingly. How about some Johnny Cash, Marty asked, removing another tape. No, said Sprout. The Misfits? Okay. Marty popped the tape into my battery-powered cassette deck, but after one song, he switched it to Johnny Cash. Sprout didn't complain. He rolled over and slept in the corner. Marty sang and laughed. We came to a stop, and even while laying in the bed of the truck, I knew there was a problem. Our driver, Georgia, was shouting through the truck's closed windows. A man in his mid-twenties, with long dreadlocks and a gray mechanic's one-piece suit, walked up to the window and said, They did it early this morning. Five Freddies showed up with axes and they tore it apart. It was only Prince down here. There was nothing he could do. He ran back up to camp, but it was too late. I popped my head over the top of the cab and saw what looked like a giant pile of wood ready to be burnt. Fuck Prince, said Georgia. He just ran away? Who are these guys? asked the man, pointing to us. I would have gotten in front of their fucking axes, Georgia went on. The wood pile obscured half the road. The other half was covered in scraps. I guess that was the roadblock, Marty said, kneeling beside me. When do we start rebuilding, asked Georgia. They're discussing that right now. Well, I'm leaving the truck here. It was a good half mile from the torn down roadblock to base camp. We carried our backpacks, sleeping bags, and sacks of groceries from the food bank. When we arrived, everyone was abuzz. What the fuck did the... started Georgia... We didn't have it totally built yet, said a man who stood no less than seven feet tall. We didn't have the wiring in. Where's Prince? I want to hear what happened. At this point, the base camp consisted of one giant teepee built of tarps and wood, one unlit fire pit, two fold-out tables surrounded by five-gallon buckets containing food, and one grill. There were maybe 20 women and men milling around. Marty and Sprout seemed to know a few of them. What's up, Charles, said Marty, giving another bearded man a hug. My name is Gorilla up here, replied the friend. The Freddies are everywhere. They're taking down names. Who are the Freddies? asked Marty. Forest Rangers. Ah, said Marty. I didn't know if it was the loggers or what. Off to our side, I could hear Georgia yelling. I think we should get down there and start building. Did you bring the tarps? asked the tall man. Yeah, they're in the truck. The tall man nodded and said, It's going to start raining soon. Night fell and the temperature dropped quickly. Someone cooked a giant pot of lentil soup and the group gathered around the bonfire. The problem with rebuilding the barricade is that it's on the road, said the tall man. 
They can write down our names, but it's not illegal to be in the woods. The roads are owned by the logging companies. The Freddies want us to go there. That's where they can bust us. That's where they can write us a ticket, said another man. That doesn't do anything. I'm not afraid of a ticket. Well, they can arrest you for trespassing. This is a public forest. They can only write you a ticket. The tall man shook his head and said, they can do whatever they want. I woke to commotion. I was sleeping in the teepee with two other people. The rangers are walking around the camp, someone whispered. I put on my shoes and rolled up my sleeping bag. I strapped it to my backpack and put on the jacket I'd been using as a pillow. All my gear was packed, heaved on my back, and I was on my feet, but I had nowhere to go. After a couple of minutes, a girl with curly blonde hair walked by holding a toothbrush. They're gone, she said. As she casually strolled away, I noticed she wasn't wearing any shoes. I'd been living on the street for about a month, first in Seattle and then in Portland. I spent my nights sleeping under bridges or crashing in public parks. In Seattle, a man offered to let me sleep in the graveyard with him. He'd broken into a mausoleum and set up quite a home. I've got a bed in there with a flashlight, he said. There's plenty of room for you to put your sleeping bag down. Get out of the rain. A boy named Freak had introduced me to this man when I mentioned I was looking for a place to stay. I only drink, said the graveyard man, lifting a bottle of Cisco. I'm not a junkie like these guys. He motioned the bottle towards the men sitting next to him. In Portland, I couldn't catch a night's sleep without the police waking me up. They found me under every bridge in town. I'd apologize laying on the ground as they pushed their feet into my ribs. When I met Marty and Sprout, things turned around. They showed me parks outside of town, places the police didn't go. They showed me I didn't need to pay to ride the train out to these parks, just avoid the man who checked the tickets. With these two by my side, I was getting a full night's sleep, almost, and I didn't want to go back to how I was living before. When they mentioned they were hopping a train to Eugene, a town I'd never heard of, I told them I was on board. When they said they were heading up to the tree sits, I didn't hesitate to follow. Five people marched through the woods on their way from base camp to the tree sits. They carried crates of fruit and vegetables. I followed along, reluctantly. You have to see them, Marty explained to me earlier. They're amazing. I sat on a stump, staring off into the woods. While base camp was located safely in the public land of Williamette National Forest, the tree sits themselves sat about half a mile away, on land now owned by a logging company. Those Freddies aren't coming back, he went on. Come on, we're taking a trail through the woods to get over there. You're safe, we're not going anywhere near the road. We weaved through the trees, avoiding areas dense and low plant growth as to not harm the forest floor. A stream crossed our path, and we followed it to a bend where a cluster of rocks allowed us to skip across. Then came the road. The tall man huddled us together. Everyone, 
Keep your eyes and ears open for cops, he said. If you see anyone, split up, run into the woods. They can't follow all of us. I gave Marty a stern look. He shrugged. Hello, trees, hollered the tall man. What's going on with the road, came a voice from above. You could see them, as clear as the ferns at our hips. There, over 100 feet off the ground, people peered down from plywood planks. Tarps were hung over a few platforms, protecting them from the rain, and traverse lines ran between five main structures and five different trees. They destroyed our garden, another person shouted down. They broke down the roadblock, explained the tall man. Yeah, no shit. A five-gallon bucket was lowered. We placed fruit and vegetables inside. Do we send up water, I asked. They catch the rain, someone answered. I knelt in the garden below the tree sits. Another boy and I did our best to replant vegetables that the forest rangers had uprooted. I don't think these tomato plants are salvageable, said the boy. I shoved carrots back under the soil and righted a pole for the string beans to cling to. The damage was pretty catastrophic. You'd think the forest rangers would be into keeping plants alive, I said. The boy shook his head. Our hopeless labor was halted by the sound of a vehicle coming up the road. A cry came from above. Freddy's! I dashed off in my own direction, as instructed, but quickly realized I could not get back to base camp alone. I spotted the boy from the garden and charged towards him. He ducked behind a fallen tree, and I pulled up to his side. A truck stopped underneath the tree village. The forest rangers shouted up into the sits, but I couldn't make out what they were saying over my nervous panting. What are they doing? I asked the boy. Nothing, he said. Are they going to try to get them out of the trees? No, said the boy. There's nothing they can do. After a couple of minutes, the truck turned around and drove off. Our group emerged from the forest. Let's stay off the road, said the tall man. We stopped at a spring on the way back to base camp and filled a five-gallon bucket with water. I'll help carry it, I said, but... After a few steps, I had to admit it was a little too heavy for me. A larger man took the handle. It's all right, said Marty. You were doing good with that garden. When we returned to base camp, the rest of the group was busy stringing a tarp high off the ground to protect the bonfire from the inevitable rain. You could hear it start off in the distance, water connecting with leaf. It was Mother Nature putting her finger to her mouth and giving the world a giant shh. Then the rain began to fall. The middle of the woods is not a great place for a wet dream. I woke at the moment of orgasm, as I always do. I peeled back my sleeping bag and looked down. I had gone to sleep still wearing my coat, socks, and pants. A wet spot was visible, just below my left pant pocket. The rain was only a drizzle at this point. It was just after dawn, and the camp was still sleeping. Despite the lack of sink or running water, I walked to the hole we used as a toilet. It was the closest thing the camp had to privacy. 
The night's rain had soaked the roll of toilet paper next to the hole. I carefully peeled off wet strips and used them to wipe down my underwear and blot the outside of my pants. Finally, I made my way back to my sleeping bag, hoping, come morning, the stain would evaporate, or at least blend in with the other stains. Fuck those Freddies! Whose road? Our road! Maybe it was anxiety brought on by the destroyed roadblock, or boredom that seeped up from the rain, but the crew at Fall Creek Base Camp was riled up. Are they going to arrest all 25 of us? No! Earlier, someone walking back from the tree sits had seen a couple of forest rangers park near a stream. Now a large group had decided to take the road by these Freddies, showing we weren't afraid. But I was scared. The worst they're going to do is write you a ticket, explained Marty. If they write me a ticket, they'll have my name and address, I said. So give them a fake name. Sprout was standing over Marty. Don't be a pussy, he said. I've got warrants out for me and I'm going. Come on, Fletcher, said this beautiful traveler girl named Minnie. She had just arrived at base camp that morning. It's going to be fun. I looked down and again checked the stain on my pants. Marty patted me on the back and the group to our side began howling like wolves. I watched from the kitchen as 21 people marched towards the road. The crew cheered and hugged and jumped on each other's backs. They were giddy. I sat around washing pots and pans using rainwater we had collected. Me and a guy named Rascal fixed a tarp that had fallen and collected wood for the night's fire. You could hear the group five minutes before their return. They were still cheering and howling and talking over one another. A couple people got tickets, said the tall man, but that was so much fun. I asked Marty how much the tickets were for, and he told me $100. Did Sprout get one, I asked? No. He ran into the woods. Minnie was holding watch at the still-destroyed roadblock. Can someone bring her food? The tall man asked after breakfast. I will, I volunteered. You had to take the road to get to the blockade, so I moved quickly, looking behind me every 30 seconds. The rain was pretty steady at this point. My sneakers squished as I stepped. Hi, how's it going? I asked Minnie. You brought me food! That's so nice! She took the corn, rice, and beans from my hands. What's your name again? It's Fletcher. I looked at Minnie as she began to eat. She had dark brown eyes and a plump face. Her lips were full, and two thin lines ran tattooed from her temples to the edge of her eyelids. She wore a ratty black sweatshirt with a number of plain black patches sewn on the sleeves and hood. There was an 8 by 10 inch black flap hanging from the back of her tight black pants. How's it going down here, I asked. Pretty boring. I'm sick of this rain. She had a gray tarp wedged inside part of the roadblock forming a little nest. There was a book sitting in there. What are you reading, I asked. High fidelity. How is it? Boring. She pulled out a canteen and took a drink. I'm just wet, all the time. Do you have any alcohol? No, I said. Minnie looked around. I asked her about the forest rangers and where she was from. 
I asked her what brought her out here and where she had been before this, but my small talk ran thin as her answers became shorter and shorter. I really wish we had some alcohol, she said. My shoes squished as I hurried back up the road, again looking behind me every 30 seconds. After dark, we sat around the fire. Everyone clapped when a boy named Hickey arrived. He had been relieved after a week in the tree sits. Fuck this rain, he said, then stripped naked and stood beside the fire, slowly rotating in front of our group. Minnie showed up 15 minutes later, also having been replaced at her post. You've got the right idea, she said to Hickey. She stripped to her underwear and laid her wet clothes on the rocks surrounding the fire pit. Beer was passed around, and the group had a discussion on the effects of psychedelic drugs. Later that night, Hickey and Minnie shared a tent. That is a twisted Disney cartoon, said Marty. Do you think they're having sex, I asked. I know they're having sex, he said. In the morning, I woke with a horrible sore throat. The days I carried my sickness were a bit of a blur. Time spent at base camp was mundane on a good day. We spent a little time each afternoon prepping food for the people living in the trees, but mostly we were just there for moral support. Climbing lessons took place each morning. There were ropes and carabiners and the tall man telling you when to climb and when the person spotting you should pull you a little higher. I felt guilty taking part in these lessons, knowing I would never go up in the trees, but I also felt rude if I declined. Now my sickness gave me an excuse to sit the climbing lessons out. No one gave me a hard time about the snot pouring from my nose. No one complained when I coughed while sleeping amongst them. During the day, I sometimes went to a corner alone and rolled myself up in a tarp like a burrito, trying to find a moment of peace and an hour of dry sleep. I looked up to the members of the camp. I'd been politically active before my arrival, regularly attending protests and even writing manifestos damning corporations for greed and religious figures for manipulation. I longed for the camp's respect, but I was young and scared and far from home for the first time. And I was sick. I'm heading up into the trees, Marty said one day. I'll be up there for a week. You gonna be all right? I sat on a stump in the rain, wishing I had a tissue. Sprout will be with you, Marty went on. I looked just beyond Marty's shoulder and saw Sprout drinking a beer at 10 a.m. That night, around the bonfire, Sprout and another boy entertained the group with an acoustic guitar. They played punk songs, and I tried to sing along, although my throat was raw from coughing. At one point, Sprout finished a song and looked me directly in the eye. I'm surprised you know that one, college boy, he said with a drunken smirk. I was, in fact, between semesters of college, although I'd never mentioned this to Sprout or anyone else at camp. Smoke from the bonfire blew in my direction. I coughed and retreated back to the kitchen. I woke under a tarp. The rain was steady, but my sleeping bag was dry and my body was warm. Maybe I had a fever. I lay on my left side with my head slanted down, letting the snot drain from my nostril on its own. 
I had to urinate, but I held it because warm, dry moments were rare. I put on my headphones and listened to a 90-minute tape of the Velvet Underground, stopping mid-song to flip the cassette. In Portland, when the police woke me with their feet, I knew to make my way to the college library. The student employees never bothered me as I caught a couple hours of sleep in their cushioned chairs. But now I was outside of Eugene, a town I'd never heard of before my arrival. I didn't know anyone. I didn't know if there was a college library or even a college at all. I'll just stay in the woods, I thought to myself, pinching my thighs together and excreting mucus. They can arrest me, that's fine. The music came to a stop as the tape reached the end of side B. There's food here, I thought, and this tarp is my home. I have a home. A gust of wind sprinkled my face with water, and suddenly I was coughing again. I removed my headphones and rolled to my right side, giving my other nostril a chance to drain. Just then, two beautiful women pulled up in a truck. I wound down the hills of the Oregon forest. I was sitting between two beautiful women in the cab of their truck, trying not to fall asleep. How have the forest rangers been? asked Christine, the driver. They're around all the time, I guess. I was twisted slightly in Christine's direction, trying to rest the left side of my head against the back window. I haven't really seen them, but people keep spotting them in the woods, and I guess they're taking notes on us. You didn't see them? asked Nikki, the passenger. Uh, I guess my eyes aren't very good. I wanted to be cordial, but I was exhausted. Those Freddies probably took down our license plate, said Nikki. Fuck them, said Christine. They can have it. The girls talked hurriedly about the forest rangers as I struggled to keep my head up. I'd wake every once in a while and cough violently into my shirt. You sound sick, said Christine. Wake up, sleepyhead. We're here. I opened my eyes. The truck was on the side of the road. There was a car beside us and an 18-wheeler in front. Years of visitors had worn the brush back, creating a makeshift parking lot leading to the hot springs. The week of rain had turned this driveway to mud. I guess we're not alone, said Nikki, peeking in the window of one of the cars. The girls pulled bathing suits from inside the cab, and I turned away as they changed. You should leave your clothes here, said Christine. They'll get wet. This rain. In just my underwear, with a cold wind at my back, I followed the girls down a path about a quarter mile into the woods. It's freezing, said Nikki. Maybe we should have brought clothes. I coughed in response. As we neared the springs, two middle-aged women passed us on their way out. We nodded to one another. Howdy, came a shout from below. We looked down into the springs, and there, emerged to his large belly, was a man in his late 40s. He was bald and smiling, with skin an unhuman shade of red. Hey, he said, the water's fine. We walked down the riverbank. There's no need for those bathing suits, he went on. There's only one way to experience the hot springs, and that's naked. Those two women you just saw leaving were naked. The hot springs emerged next to a large flowing river. 
Someone had created three distinct pools out of stones and driftwood. The girls set their towels down on a log as I dipped my foot in one of the pools. Each one's a little hotter than the last, said the man. They get hotter as you get closer to the spring, up where I am. And I'm not kidding, though. You should try it naked. Even you, boy. I'm fine in a bathing suit, said Nikki, stepping into the second pool outside of this man's reach. I followed closely behind. There's no shame in it, said the man. Then he stood up, exposing his flaccid red penis. Snot dripped from my nose and fell into the hot springs. Where are y'all from, asked the naked man. I'm from Lawrence, Kansas, but whenever my route takes me through Oregon, I always put time aside to come to these springs. Water trickled from his pool, a couple feet in diameter, over the rocks and into our pool. It passed through another barrier to the third stoned-off area and then into the river. If you really want to feel something, sit down next to me, he went on. You'll feel the heat. It's great for my back. I'm ready to really do this thing, said Christine. She climbed over the barrier into the lead spring. Yeah, don't be afraid. I'm not a pervert. I might be a trucker, but I'm not a pervert. I've got a wife at home and a son. He moved to another corner of the pool. Come up here, he said, right where I was. That's the hottest. That's heaven on earth. Oh, yeah, said Christine. Nikki, come up here. And what's your name? Fletcher, I said. Fletcher, this is going to help your cold. Soon we all found ourselves sitting around the trucker in the steamiest part of the spring. When one of the girls got too hot, she would sit on the stones for a minute, cooling down with just her feet in the water. This will get all the toxins out of you, said the trucker. If you're sick, this will fix you right up. But I'm not kidding. You'll never feel anything as wonderful as if you're in here naked. It's like being born. Everyone cries when they're born, said Nikki. The trucker looked off into the woods. Where do you want to get out? asked Christine as we pulled into Eugene. I peered out the window as we passed rows of houses. I don't know, I said. I've never really been here before. We turned a corner and the houses gave way to a strip of stores. Where do the kids hang out, I asked. Broadway, both girls said in unison. Here's the best spot, said Nikki. They dropped me in front of a coffee shop. It was four in the afternoon and the streets were empty. I slung my backpack over my shoulder while drizzle dusted my face. Kids hang here, but this weather sucks, said Nikki. Okay, I said, then went into a coughing fit. Feel better, said Christine as the truck pulled away. I walked to a grocery store, bought a box of cereal and half a gallon of orange juice, then hiked back to Broadway. Still, no one was around. A patron coming out of the coffee shop pointed me in the direction of the Greyhound bus terminal. I used their bathroom to shave, something I hadn't done since entering the woods. After exiting the bathroom, I slouched down in one of the station's seats and fell asleep. What bus are you waiting for? asked an employee standing over me. Sorry, I said, picking up my bag and hurrying out the door. I wandered down the train tracks and found a good place to hide with a thick covering of trees to block the rain. Hopefully not, I told myself and walked back to Broadway.
Dude, I don't even want my front teeth. Seriously, all you need is your molars. Two traveler kids stood in front of the coffee shop. I recognized one of them from Portland, but I didn't know his name. Both wore black Carhartt pants with black sweatshirts and black baseball caps. What's going on? I said. The boys stared at me. I met you in Portland at the Seals, and we went to a house party. You're friends with Josh. Who are you? asked the boy I didn't recognize. I'm Fletcher. You have all your teeth, Fletcher? Yes, I said. Let me see. I smiled at him. Holy shit, those are the straightest teeth I've ever seen. Did you have braces? Yeah, I said. Well, you better stay lucky. One wrong move and all those expensive teeth might get knocked out. I followed the two traveler kids to a house outside of town. They said there was a party there. When we arrived, no one was home. We can go drink at Billy's house, one of them said. I coughed and blew snot from my nose onto the ground. The two boys pushed open a gate and made their way into the backyard. I bet I can break in through a window, said the boy I didn't know. Later, we arrived at Billy's house. Five people stood around the kitchen, drinking 22-ounce cans of steel reserve. The kitchen was a mess. There was one table and one wooden chair. The table was covered in beer cans, each littered with cigarette butts. The sink overflowed with dishes, empty cans, and moldy pizza boxes. Above the kitchen counter were cabinets. There was a space between the top of these cabinets and the ceiling. In this space, someone had carefully placed empty beer containers of every brand and every size in a line that ran the length of these cabinets. They descended in order from 40-ounce bottles to 12-ounce cans. Clearly, a lot of time had gone into this project. There was a record player on the counter next to the sink. It was a vintage unit, the kind that held a record on top of a spike and dropped it to the platter when the previous record finished. Vinyl records, void of their covers, oozed from the stereo in all directions. Most of them were scratched or worse. There was a boy passed out in the one wooden chair. His shoelaces were tied together. Penises and swastikas were drawn with marker on his face, and the group excitedly waited for a tray of ice cubes to harden in the freezer so they could pour them down this boy's pants. This did not seem like a good place for me to sleep. I hate these dishes! A man with half his head shaven stood over the pile of dishes in the sink. He dragged a stool up to the kitchen counter, stood unsteadily on top of it, and began urinating on the mess. The room groaned. Someone kicked the leg of the stool, and the boy toppled backwards, still urinating. He caught himself against the wall and stayed on his feet. I'll fucking piss on you, he yelled, and the room erupted in laughter. I drank too much orange juice, I explained to a girl in the corner. My stomach is killing me. Do you have any left, she asked. I pulled the last of my half gallon from my backpack. The girl took it and poured some into her steel reserve. She handed the carton back and said, Have you ever mixed orange juice and malt liquor? It's really good. I'd watch out, I said. I'm pretty sick. She handed me her beer and I took a sip. 
That's delicious, I said. It tastes like Orangina. I'm sick too, she replied. The boy with the penises and swastikas drawn on his face now lay sleeping on the ground below the sink. I resigned myself to the hardwood floor in the living room. I placed my sleeping bag in the corner while people fell over each other on the couch, flirting and laughing. The couch was covered in patches of punk bands sewn into its surface. Sew me to the couch, demanded a boy with two gold teeth. He was thin and tall, with black Carhartt pants hemmed down the sides to fit tightly to his body. He was handsome and loud. A girl with blue hair sat by his side, laughing. I'm not kidding. Sew me to the couch. I want to be part of this couch. He lifted a pillow and screamed, I love this couch! Okay, okay, sit still, said the girl. She pulled a sewing kit off the coffee table and took out a needle and dental floss. Wait. The boy with the gold teeth ran into the kitchen and grabbed two beers that were hidden in a cabinet. Okay, do it, he said. I lay on the floor in my sleeping bag. The girl looked down at me and said, Do you want me to sew you in that bag? Yes, screamed the handsome boy. Like in the old times, when a male suitor would stay with his lady, so they couldn't fuck. I smiled up at the girl as she ran the needle first through the couch and then through the handsome boy's pants. Don't stick me, he said. Dustin, where are you going? Came a girl's voice from the kitchen. I've got to go. No, stay. Stay. Alyssa's in town. She's crashing at my house. I told her I'd make her breakfast in the morning. No, stay. Months earlier, before I left Boston to come out west, my friend Alyssa sat me down and made a list of names I should look up during my travels. She also mentioned that she may be making a trip herself. One of the names on that list was Dustin. I put on my glasses and rushed to the door. Hey, hey man, is Alyssa from Boston staying at your house? No. Well, she's from here, but she lived in Boston before. Yeah, yes, I said. I'm Fletcher. She told me to find her if I came out here. She wrote down your name on a piece of paper. I can show it to you. It's in my bag. I pointed to my pile of things scattered in the living room. Are you sleeping on the floor? Asked Dustin. I've got a couch open at my place if you want. Thank you, I said. Thank you. Give me one minute. Dustin wore a black sweatshirt with black Carhartt pants and a pair of all-black Converse. He had a shaven head and a poison girl's patch sewn over his heart. Are you in town for chaos days? He asked. No, I was just up in Fall Creek. Oh, cool. I haven't been up there yet. You're from Boston? I'm from Vermont, I said, but I lived in Boston for a while. I love Vermont, Dustin said. As we walked down the street, I tried to stifle my coughing. I didn't want Dustin to be alarmed by the idea of bringing sickness into his house. But when the coughing came, it was an eruption. Are you sick, he asked. I had something up in Fall Creek, but I'm almost over it, I lied. Well, there's a couple people crashing at the house already. There's a big festival that's happening here in a couple days. But we still have a couch open. You can rest there. Thanks again, I said. No problem. It's my pleasure.
Here it is, said Dustin as we crossed the street. His front yard had a beautiful garden and a run-down pink Cadillac in the driveway. Two boys were awake, playing cards in the living room. This is Fletcher, said Dustin. Fletcher, you want a beer? I'm okay. I laid my bag down and sat in a lazy boy. Dustin retrieved a beer from his refrigerator and joined the card game. Fletcher, do you want to play? It's just for pennies. I can lend you some if you want. But I was already asleep. I woke in my sleeping bag. Me and a dog. A big dog. A pit bull. Sometime after the card game ended, I found myself sleeping in the chair. I rose, unrolled my sleeping bag, and placed it on the couch. Now a dog was inside with me, sprawled out at my feet. I could feel him, warm and squirming. He was on his back, head facing my toes, with all four legs sticking straight up, bowing out my sleeping bag. Carefully, I pulled the zipper down, revealing my shoulders, then torso, then the dog's hips, then my hips. As I pulled my legs out, the dog sprung to life. He flipped over, reeled back, and jumped on my chest. He sniffed my face and then leapt from the couch and began doing circles around the room at an incredible speed. Someone turned a door handle, and the dog ran to that door, leaping up and down in front of it. He could easily jump three feet in the air. Dio, Dio, stop it, yelled Dustin. He stepped into the living room. She was asleep in my sleeping bag, I said. It freaked me out. He's a he, said Dustin. He crawled in while I was asleep, I went on. I didn't even notice. The dog continued to pounce on Dustin, then run circles around the room. I know, said Dustin. It was hilarious because his feet were sticking straight up. I took a picture. Dio jumped on the couch and sat on my chest. What time is it, I asked. You've been asleep for 12 hours. Dustin and I were eating peanut butter on toast when a girl walked through the front door, followed by Minnie. Hey, Minnie, I said. You're at Fall Creek, she said. You brought me food. Yeah, I'm Fletcher. I turned my attention to the other girl. She had short red hair and wore 50s-style glasses. Hi, I said. I'm Alyssa, she said, putting out her hand. Oh, I don't know you, I pointed out. I turned to Dustin. Sorry, this isn't the Alyssa I know. I know another Alyssa. I turned back to this stranger. Her hand was still in the air. Sorry, I thought I knew you. I stood up and turned back to Dustin. I wasn't trying to lie, I went on. I know an Alyssa out here, I swear. We know, said this Alyssa. I looked at you on the couch this morning and didn't recognize you. It's fine. My name's not Minnie either, said Minnie. I fell back on the couch. Now you're fucking with me. That's just what I called myself in Fall Creek because of the cops. She leaned down and started playfully pushing Dio's head back and forth. My name's actually Kate. Dustin took a bite of bread. It's kind of confusing, he laughed. I wouldn't get that dog too excited, I said. What? Me and Dio are best friends. Minnie pushed the dog to the ground. The Alyssa I know has blonde dreadlocks, I said, but they didn't seem concerned. We're going to go make hot toddies, said Alyssa. Kate's sick. You guys want one? 
I cut lemons while they boiled water and poured it over Knob Creek. That rain was abusive, said Minnie. I don't know how you were up there for eight days. I feel like I'm dying. Yeah, I got sick, I said. I'm a little better after last night. Dustin began to light a cigarette and stopped himself. I'm sorry, he said. I'm lighting a cigarette in a room full of sick people. Minnie blew on the top of her cup. That's fine. I need to drag. She walked to the kitchen table and sat down next to Dustin. I looked around the kitchen. It wasn't a mess, but it was cluttered. There was a breakfast nook half hidden behind a partition with two benches and a table. Posters covered the walls and doodles covered the posters. There were jars full of rice and flour and different teas and granola and rubber bands. There was a bathroom off the kitchen. Someone had stolen an old-timey sign that read restroom and hung it in the door. Someone else had added a B and an A, so it now read breastroom. There was again a variety of empty beer cans on top of the cabinets above the sink, and a Devo record was propped up in the middle of these cans. A string of metal baskets hung from the ceiling, holding different fruit and garlic and mittens. A beautiful, sick girl smoked a cigarette next to a man I hardly knew, as we drank whiskey in the early afternoon. I got saved, I said, when Dustin let me crash on the couch. Dustin got up to grab his tea from the counter. I found him sleeping on the floor at Billy's house. That's disgusting, said Alyssa. Then she asked Dustin, what were you doing over there? I got saved twice, I went on. Two girls also drove me to a hot spring on the way down from Fall Creek. Amazing, said Alyssa. That hot spring is the best. Minnie looked up from her whiskey. Oh shit, you see any naked people? Oh yeah, big time. I took a long drink off the top of my cup. We saw this one seriously naked fat trucker guy. No. Yep, he kept trying to convince the girls I was with to get naked, and me to get naked. Alyssa added more whiskey to her and Minnie's cups, then asked, Did you do it? No, I said. I thought he was a weird pervert because, A, he kept trying to make us get naked, and B, he showed us his dick. But then he was a hero, I went on. What do you mean he showed you his dick? At one point, he just started yelling, I explained. He was yelling, hey, hey, hey. And we looked, and there were probably like 10 high school kids crouched behind trees. They were trying to see some boobs, said Minnie. Yeah, I mean... The girls I was with had bathing suits on, but they were definitely trying to see some naked girls. So, this fat trucker guy gets up, totally naked, and runs into the woods straight at the kids. He screams, you little perverts, and they bolted in the other direction. Then what? asked Alyssa. Then he came back and sat in the hot spring with us. Alyssa stared at me for a moment, then asked, and that makes him a hero? Yeah, he saved us. Alyssa put down her hot toddy and crossed her arms. Let me get this straight, she said. You were in the woods with all these people risking their lives to protect the forest, and that guy was a hero. Later, Dustin was in the living room painting. I could hear Alyssa and Minnie, drunk, laughing in one of the bedrooms. I sat in the kitchen nook, warm and dry, reading High Fidelity. 
So that's the second story of the season. Thanks to anyone who told a friend about the podcast. That's really the kind of help I need most right now. Uh, Please, if you know someone who would dig this kind of storytelling, text them an episode or tell them about it. That would be a huge help. This season, I'm asking for financial support from you listeners. A big thank you to those who've already given something. Uh, If you haven't contributed yet, I would appreciate whatever amount you think is suitable. This season is five episodes, so I think $5 is a nice amount. But if you can't afford that, a smaller amount is more than welcome. But for anyone that gives $10 or more, you will receive a bonus podcast episode as well as a 30-song album of outtakes and rarities from the Fletcher C. Johnson catalog. Money can be sent to me directly through Venmo. My Venmo is at Fletcher C. Johnson. Or you can send me the money through PayPal. My PayPal is FletcherCJohnson at gmail.com. If you give $10 or more, please include your email address in the notes with the payment so I can send you all that bonus stuff. Minnie was wrong about the book High Fidelity. It is not boring. I ended up finishing it on a three and a half day Greyhound bus ride from Oakland back to Vermont. It turned out that on that bus ride, I actually had mono and ringworm at the same time. But I think that book kept me sane. I still actually have Minnie's copy sitting on my bookshelf even today. Next week's episode is a serious history lesson. Get ready to learn everything you didn't want to know about fashion. You've been listening to Listening to Fletcher C. Johnson. I'm Fletcher C. Johnson. Thanks for listening.